Hi, this is Janka Ertl. I'm the director of the Asia program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome to Inside China, the podcast that will leave you smarter about what China's thinkers think. It has become much harder to tap into the discussions that Chinese intellectuals are having. In-person exchanges have become a lot rarer, and the space for debate has been shrinking for a number of years now. We want to make an attempt at changing that, and will engage in a conversation with some of the best Chinese academics, researchers, writers, or journalists on the entire range of topics in Chinese internal debates that matter most to Europeans. Joining us today is Professor Wang Dong from the School of International Studies and the Institute for Global Health and Development at Peking University. He's one of the most recognized Chinese voices today on China's foreign policy, particularly on U.S.-China relations and East Asian security. We're very pleased to have him with us today to talk a little bit about the Chinese understanding of the global order and how he sees the dynamics between Beijing and Washington play out in the near future. I'm also delighted to welcome Wang Dong as a former Munich young leader, where we have met ages ago at the Munich Security Conference, and it's always good and uh, great to see familiar faces again. Dong, let's start with something that has been hot news um, over the last couple of weeks. During the recent G7 summit in Hiroshima, China appeared pretty high on the agenda, with a consensus forming within that group that Beijing's policies constitute a threat to regional stability. How do you assess that event, the G7 summit, and the overall security situation in East Asia right now? Thank you, thank you, Janka. Uh, let me first just say, uh, uh, you know, I'm truly uh, honored to uh, get the invitation um, and uh, to, uh, to to sit down together with you uh, to uh, 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 appear on, on a podcast uh, program. Um, I very much look forward to our conversation. Um, well, first of all, for, for a question, I think. Uh, um, I'm not sure if there's a consensus within G7 that China actually constitutes a threat to regional stability. Uh, certainly, I didn't see any such expression being reported by the media. Uh, maybe you know something that they said behind the closed door that I didn't know. <laughs> uh, even in that case, I don't think uh, German Chancellor Schultz or French President Macron uh, would agree with such an assessment. Um, unless you believe that they were... Uh, say one thing while meeting with Chinese leaders in Beijing and then say another thing behind their back. Um, regarding G7, uh, before I offer my assessment, let's first look at two sets of uh, uh, data. The first set of data are the G7 members they actually account uh, for only 10% of world population and 16% of uh, world land area. Second, according to World Bank estimates, uh, China has been contributing to more to world economic growth than G7 combined since 2013. And actually, the 2021 data is that China has contributed to over 38% of world economic growth, whereas G7 only accounts for less than uh, 26%. So what does it mean? Well, I think the numbers show that G7 is not the whole world, and we should not pretend it is. Uh, many uh, emerging economies and vast number of global South countries are actually not represented here. Uh, 
you may argue that this year's G7 summit actually invited some non-G7 yeah. countries to attend. Well, how many scripts do those these actors get in the G7 movie? Maybe one or two lines, right? Um, and if you look at the selection of those uh, eight non-G7 countries, you actually can sense uh, geopolitical calculations. Um, a lot of uh, regional countries do not agree with uh, China's threat perception of the United States and let's say some of its G7 allies. Uh, they also refuse to accept the, uh, uh, the overly, simplistic, overly simplistic dichotomy, uh, the narrative uh, like democracy versus authoritarian regimes. Uh, and I think they are actually concerned that some G7 members want to form an anti-China bloc and divide the region and the world into two uh, opposing blocks. I think this is something a lot of uh, uh, regional countries and uh, uh, many members of the international community uh, are concerned about. Let me jump in there because I think that's where um, some of your research is also going in that direction because China is, is recently making an offer to the world, basically a, a counter offer that is being put on the table. It has introduced several new initiatives, such as the Global Security Initiative, the Global Development Initiative, and the Global Civilization Initi Initiative. Many here in the West regard them as signs of Beijing enlarging its toolbox to reshape the existing world order. But what role would you say they play in China's foreign policy? I think your institute was at the heart of the launch of the Global Security Initiative. How do you assess the attractiveness for third countries? What are the responses that you get in Beijing for these new initiatives that are being put forward? Thank you, um, Janka, for uh, this question. Yes, I think my institute, Institute for Global Cooperation and Understanding at the Peking University, uh, we were uh, on the spot uh, when the Chinese uh, Foreign Ministry released a concept paper on global uh, security initiative. So we are very proud of that fact. Um, um, uh, let me uh, put this way. I think you, you, this is a very big question. You know, we probably need uh, the whole morning, I think. That's true for uh, most of the questions. Right, right, for this uh, uh, conversation. But uh, let me just uh, put in a, 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 a very, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, sort of short answer. Uh, I think one of the key questions uh, over the years, you know, I got from my colleagues here in Europe and the United States, elsewhere, uh, people all around the world actually are asking that. Um, as now China being one of the main beneficiaries, right, of the recent decades of uh, trend of globalization, what is now, China now become the second largest economy in the world. So what is China to offer to the world, mm -hmm. right? So from the three initiatives China has introduced to the international community truly represents China's ambitions to share uh, with the world its experiences um, and ideas and visions about how to address some of the most pressing global challenges facing all humankind. So I think they also, in a way, signify China's conceptualization of what a future uh, world should look like. Uh, however, I should also emphasize that the three uh, initiatives are not only summaries of China's unique experiences or understanding in addressing uh, those global uh, challenges of development and security, but also crystallization of all humankind's shared experiences in achieving development and security. Take GDI, uh, for example. The Global Development Initiative. Global, exactly, Global Development uh, Initiative. It builds on United Nations Sustainable Development Goals 
but take several steps further and really come up with a systemic encompassing right, framework. It provides a very clear assessment of the uh, nexus between you know, development and security, prioritizing development as holding the key to regional security challenges. Uh, you may argue against that, but I think that that's a very clear position. And I think it's uh, even in academic circles, right? We always debate about that. But, you know, it's very helpful, I think, for a government like China, right? Put this out as a position, right? As a, uh, at least as an idea for discussion, right? Uh, in the international community. And also it elevates development to the cohort of common values of humanity, uh, making one of the key international ideational basis of our world. And that's also of critical importance, right? Because uh, otherwise, you know, people, there's no understanding that development is, is so important. Should that should be, should development be among the ideational basis of, of our understanding of our world? So trying to put this out. Right, I so think it's a development first agenda. Uh, at least it should be one of the cohort of the of the of the core values, right? Common values of of all humanity. I think that's a very important message. Um, that's I think exactly why uh, the Global Development Initiative has resonated so well uh, in much of the international community, especially among the global south. Um, the three initiatives uh, also I like to emphasize their infusion of Chinese ideas and the wisdom from other countries. Take the Global Security Initiative for another example. Um, some of the key concepts of the uh, Global Security Initiative, for instance, common security, comprehensive security, cooperative security, and sustainable securities are actually progressive ideas European intellectuals and strategic thinkers have developed over the years, right? And the GC, GSI sees security as indivisible, meaning one country's security is not separable from others, and one cannot achieve security at the expense of other security. This idea of indivisible security, of course, was first coined by the Europeans in the Helsinki Accords, right? Yeah. So, so you may argue that uh, the, the, the Global Security Initiative is indeed a very good case of socialization or Chinese internalization of some of the key concepts of security that widely accept uh, by the international community, right? I think we could have a, a long conversation about the Global Security Initiative and how this is perceived in Europe at the moment, but let's just kind of move on a little bit because I would like to get back to the kind of US-China relationship mm -hmm. a bit more. Um, in early 2021, at the height of the pandemic, you wrote an essay for Foreign Affairs in which he suggested a new engagement consensus between the U.S. and China, a format that could potentially be called the G2RS or a G2 of responsible stakeholders who can manage their differences in a constructive way. In retrospect, do you think this idea can still hold? So sort of two years later, are Sino-American relations unfixable now? Um, as many both in, in the U.S. and China suggest, and as maybe the conversations or the non-conversations at the recent Shangri-La dialogue um, between the U.S. and the Chinese defense ministers um, may also indicate. Thank you, uh, Jenga, so much for uh, still remembering my article. In fact, <laughs> it's not that long. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think I made it clear, actually, in my essay um, that there's no guarantee uh, that we will reach at a new engagement consensus and arrive at a G2IS world. Uh, rather, the opposite might become true. 
Um, a new engagement consensus is what believe, I believe that among the most ideal paths going forward, uh, which means when every condition is met, all places are rational, there will be among, this will be among the most ideal outcome. Yet, um, all conditions are not, all, not always met. Oftentimes, players are uh, not rational. Policymakers and public alike suffer from emotions, prejudices, Suffer from emotions? <laughs> fear, right? Uh, and the policymakers have to operate amidst a wide range of constraints, constraints and uncertainties. But nevertheless, I think one luxury of us scholars uh, we enjoy is that we, we, we can think about what will happen when assume every condition is met, right? And they're visualizing, um, so, uh, so um, I think, so, so we, we can think about what will happen when we assume that every condition is met. So visualizing the universe of, of possibilities, I would argue, is what scholars can do and should do. Uh, and this is one luxury, really, uh, we enjoy about policymakers, they probably do not. To actually be able to think about best case scenario exactly. every once in a while as exactly. well. Okay. So I'm to see that some of my ideas, I'm very delighted actually to see some of my ideas resonate well with analysts and policymakers, uh, you know, around the world. For instance, my suggestion that competition between China and the United States needs to be a calibrated, constructed, and managed one, actually echo with what uh, Mr. Kevin Rudd, right, his idea of concept of managed competition. And also, I, in my essay, I argue that instead of pursuing a damage and complete decoupling of the two economies, uh, Washington and Beijing needs to couple, recouple their economies on the basis of mutual respect and reciprocity. And coincidentally, or not, perhaps not so coincidentally, uh, U.S. State Representative Kathleen Tai, uh, in her remarks on Biden's trade policy at CSIS in October, I remember, I believe, October 2021, 20, uh, uh, she confesses uh, that in the age of globalization, rather than de decoupling, the United States and China should uh, think in terms of recoupling. So it's very interesting. U.S. policy community was initially caught off guard by you know, uh, her uh, uh, use of the phrase recoupling, saying, where, where did this come from? Never heard about this. And later on, they quickly dig this out and uh, found out that term was first gone in my April 2021 <laughs> foreign affairs article. Um, so, so I think you're right. I think the U.S. strong relations are facing a lot of difficult difficulties nowadays. And uh, indeed, many people believe it's uh, the bilateral relationship is at lowest points in decades. But I disagree with the assessment that those China ties are un unfixable. Um, I remember that about nine years ago, uh, back in uh, 2014, I wrote an, a pet piece in the New York Times in which I argued that both Washington and Beijing should not be carried away by fatalism and pessimism. And I think fatalism and pessimism are self-reinforcing. Uh, and I believe there's still a possibility that a new equilibrium in U.S.-China relations might be resolved. But it probably will take at least 10 years, probably 20 years or even longer. Uh, between now and then, I think it's a period uh, with rising could be, you know, sort of uh, uh, really be, uh, 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 there will be rising tensions and be possibility of conflict. So how to prevent an emerging rivalry you just mentioned? from growing into a new Cold War is among the biggest challenges, I think, facing us. So just to follow up, you would argue we're not in a new Cold War yet. 
we're still kind of able to avoid that from happening. What do you think kind of are um, the reasons for the deterioration to just also say what would be the conditions under which that, that we would need to, what are the best case conditions basically that we would need yes. to create to, um, to avoid this from happening? Because from a European perspective, clearly there's no interest in a further fragmentation of the world all trading powers. We're sitting here meeting in Berlin, right. um, one of the most trade and export-oriented countries. Right. Um, so obviously the big question here is, how can this be stopped, mm -hmm. this downward spiral? Um, you know, I first of all, I understand the new Cold War question is a big debate. Um, some people argue we're already in the new Cold War. Uh, I think I'm going to view, I share uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger's observation, we're still sort of in the initial, the emerging science of that. But it's still, I think there's time for us to try to work hard to try to prevent that from further escalating into uh, something, you know, passing the point of no return, et cetera. Um, so getting to your uh, question, I think, uh, um, uh, you know, structural argument of perhaps now uh, among the most popular explanations for the deterioration, right, of bilateral ties between China and the United States, uh, the Susan's trap argument being one of them, that is... Uh, it is inevitable that there will be a uh, power struggle you know, between rising power and an established power. Uh, when it comes to U.S.-China relations, most analysts seem to take the structural explanation for granted and therefore uh, accept strategic competition as a given. However, I think there are at least two problems in the structural explanation. For one thing, I think it, is, it, it struggles, it has difficulty in explaining the recent uh, something uh, precipitous shift in U.S. views of China. For instance, uh, you know, um, when you argue the U.S. views of China, uh, there's a, a, a sudden shift, right, uh, in the second half of the Trump administration, uh, signified by its publishing of its uh, the Trump's uh, national security uh, 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 strategy document, right? viewing China as a main strategic competitor. However, where, if you look at the so-called objective structure of interest between China or distribution of power, right, the structural factors, there are no fundamental changes between then, 2018, and 2015 or 16, right? So you can argue, well, there may be marginal uh, shifted in power balances between China and United States in all those three years. But you wouldn't say there's fundamental shift in the power balances. So therefore, I think structural, you know, that's number one, I think, deficiency in the structural explanation. It cannot explain why there's sudden shift in the American perception of China, right? And more importantly, secondly, I think it creates a sense of inevitability that can turn rivalry into a self-fulfilling prophecy because now everyone believes it is inevitable, a conflict is inevitable. Therefore, I believe the sooner, you know, I start to, to, to work to prevent the worst case scenario, the better for me. And therefore, you actually accelerate uh, this prophecy, making it easier, right? Much faster, much quicker, right? To, to become reality. So, so American hearts think that the United States must urgently preempt Chinese power, while Chinese nationals believe that they must prepare for inevitable American containment effort. So, so, so you have this sort of uh, 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 prophecy being accelerated and become, you know, increasingly self-fulfilling. So, I think that's the second problem of uh, structural explanations. 
So I think the argument that focus on individual agencies, I would argue, by contrast, can point to some of the cognitive errors, for instance, attribution bias, for instance, that actually the, some of the very important mechanisms that reinforce uh, rivalry. You know, I'm a Cold War historian by training, right? So, so during the Cold War, for example, the U.S. officials pursued very expensive, uh, expensive measures for U.S. security with little mind on uh, to how much move they, they, the, such moves would be seen in Moscow and proceeded to attribute Soviet responses to aggressive motives and vice versa. So the same dynamics, I think, this is what psychologists you know, call it attribution error or biases. So I would argue the same dynamic holds in contemporary interaction between China and the United States, considered from a Chinese perspective. When Washington imposes sanctions against rivals, it considers such actions legitimate and, 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 and claim that those are legitimate and rules-based. So when and Beijing, the same holds true for Beijing, right? Yeah. When Beijing does the same to defend its own interests, legitimate interests, and Washington accuses it of resorting to bullying and coercion and intimidation. So when China followed the footsteps of the United States, NATO allies, and even Japan by establishing a very, I would say, very modest supply base in Djibouti, and Washington immediately accuses Chinese expansionism, uh, but pointing to its own basis, how many you count, 800 plus or all across the world, as pillars of peace and the stability right around the world. So, so U.S. policymakers ascribe aggressive intention to Chinese actions that are actually very similar to the United States' own actions, uh, driven by its own security calculation. So, so this kind of just one example, right? I give you attribution errors, the the, the factors at the agency level, how that can help. Uh, I think uh, remedy some of the deficiencies in the structural argument and help us to come uh, uh, arrive at a more complete you know, understanding of what, what what really going on. Uh, so, so I think the structural argument about uh, predetermined rivalry really misses the fact that um, agency, as much as structural, account for uh, recent downturns. In so it's like on policymakers to change this, basically. Exactly. Um, it's important you know, for us scholars to point this out and also for policymakers to, uh, and maybe to a great extent, public you know, alike to, uh, to, to be aware of that and how to address those uh, uh, issues, yeah. avoid pitfalls going ahead. So since we're sitting here in Europe uh, and uh, we are almost running out of time, so maybe a quick answer for this one. How do you see the role of Europe in the accelerating rivalry between China and the US? Um, China has supported the idea of European strategic autonomy for a long time. But given how contentious this notion is, even within the EU, with the Swedish prime minister not wanting to, for example, sign on to it at all, talking about strategic unity, is there any other approach that might prove useful to go beyond the current deadlock in Sino-European ties? Um, you know, I think Europe actually has a very important role to play in shaping the future trajectory of US-China relations. If we assume for a moment it's still not you know, set yet is there possibility of going different directions, right? But it actually could go either way, I mean, in terms of a European role, right? One possibility that Europe joins the camps of the United States, become a strong ally of the United States in its effort to contain China, and therefore willingly or unwillingly really leads us into a new world. But there's this other possibility as well, which is that the Europe 
strives at creating a balanced, you know, Europe, US-China uh, relationship, if not triangle, trying to help, you know, curb a little bit the your American allies' tendency toward a new Cold War, and therefore helping elevating rather than intensifying US-China tensions. So therefore, I think in a sense, uh, Europe's choices well, uh, to a great extent, also help shape the future trajectory of U.S.-China relations. Yeah, so to, to end on a potentially more positive note, and, um, what would be the prerequisites that we now need for mutual trust to be rebuilt between Beijing and Washington so that Europe can play that role of you know, potentially swaying the size? How can we ensure that these current tensions do not spiral out of control? Is there anything immediate that can be done? Because I think The Shangri-La situation is worrying. Um, you know, the, the speech by Chinese defense minister has been likened to Putin's speech 2017 at the Munich Security Conference, which obviously really rattles Europeans um, if they look at what, uh, what has happened afterwards. So what do you think? What, is, what are the few things that, that can potentially be done right now to make sure that there is this proverbial floor that can be put under the relationship? Uh, uh, first of all, let me just say, because I also read Chinese Defense Minister uh, Li Shangfu's uh, speech delivered at the Shanghai Dialogue, I, I would really encourage, I think, our European colleagues to, to read you know, carefully mm -hmm. the, the whole speech instead of some clips uh, from the media you know, uh, uh, circulation, because a lot of those things are taken out of uh, contact, because I think the, the overall speech, I, I believe, From my, you know, understanding, reading of it, I think it's a very, very balanced uh, approach, really presenting a, a very comprehensive way of Chinese understanding of security. And of course, we also, in a, I think, uh, Minister, uh, Defense Minister Lee, in his, you know, uh, uh, military, right, he's, he's a soldier. So in a very uh, sort of uh, uh, typical soldier's way, he, he put it in a very straightforward, yeah, yeah. blunt way. Because... Because look, you know, China has a definition of understanding conceptualization of conceptualization of security in this way. But but of course, uh, China also made it very clear its willingness to uh, to pursue cooperation and also you know non-zero sum kind of mentality right brings to the table. Uh, although things a lot of constructive elements in that. I, I from what I read, it's a it's a it's a speech delivered by uh, uh, our defense minister soldier, you know, by training his career with principle, but also with a clear, uh, 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 sincere, I think, message coming from Beijing, China, a willingness to cooperate and pursue reasonable peace and stability. Um, then quickly, uh, going to, I, I remember uh, your previous question was to how to break the dialogue in yeah. China-European right, uh, uh, ties. Uh, I think first, I think this one is actually connected to your current question as well. I think first and foremost, it is of critical importance for both Europe and China to enact with each other, really with mutual respect and humility. We resolve the baggage of moralism, self-righteousness, and ideological prejudices. It's not easy, actually, because more... For both sides, I guess. <laughs> right. right. Uh, I think it's, it's human nature, right? Uh, because moralism and self-righteousness offer psychological comfort, even when pol policies are ineffective or even self-defeating. I still feel like, you know, because I mm -hmm. enjoy the moral high ground, etc. And because of ideo ideological prejudice, by definition, is uh, perhaps among the most difficult 
uh, uh, human cognitive failures to fix. But I believe we can bring respect, humility, and pr pragmatism, and resist the moralism, self-righteousness, and, and, and ideological prejudice. I think we can open doors to a new universal possibilities. Particularly, I would like to emphasize the importance of promoting people-to-people -people exchange at all levels. Nothing could be more effective than face-to-face -face exchanges mm -hmm. like what we are doing currently at this moment now, right? The conversation we are engaging in. Um, to some extent, I think the answer to the use challenge is very similar. For uh, mutual trust to be resolved between Washington and Beijing, uh, I think uh, both uh, uh, sides should approach each other with mutual respect and uh, humility. They should resist emotion, uh, moralism, self-righteousness, uh, prejudice, and promoting people-to-people -people exchanges at all levels is another prerequisite. Last month, uh, my institute, uh, Institute for Global Cooperation, and our standing, or IGCU uh, at Peking University, we did a China-U.S.-Singapore trilateral dialogue with CSIS and Nanyang Technological Universities, ISIS. Uh, it was actually the largest face-to-face uh, -face encounter trilateral in the post-pandemic uh, period. And we all agree that nothing could be more effective than face-to-face -face exchanges. We would love to, uh, you know, at least I think from perspective of, of, of scholar point of view, I think this is the faint contributions we can make uh, to help, you know, build more um, uh, mutual understanding between right each side and help uh, remove uh, at least some of those misunderstandings, misperceptions, and help chart a rational path going forward. Uh, so to ensure, I think, the current tension uh, don't spiral out of control, and fundamentally, uh, Washington and Beijing should arrive at an accurate assessment of each other's intention. Uh, it's easily said that down, I, I think. Actually. That is definitely true right. at the moment, I would right. say. So don't, we have this inside China work that we're doing um, also just to identify what are the things that are actually kind of are on the minds of Chinese thinkers, academics at the moment. So we always ask our guests on the podcast across all the different policy areas that you're looking at at the moment. What is the one area in which you think currently like Chinese intellectual debates are the most exciting? Where's the most stuff going on? What is the wildest conversations that you're hearing at the moment? Where's the most debate? Right. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad that you 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 uh, read this question. You know, as I just share with you, I uh, currently am also uh, directing the administrative office uh, of think tanks mm -hmm. at the Peking University. So, so I actually, you know, coming out of my own discipline, right, international relations, IR, I also see a lot of those policy, you know, discussing, debating in, in all various different disciplines. Um, I think you're right. It's uh, very exciting. You know, a lot of different things, uh, uh, huge diversity in those uh, discussion dialogues. So I really encourage, I think, our European colleagues, universities, think tanks, you know, we, we need to seize the opportunity now engage right in uh, in all fronts uh, the academic exchanges policy discussions uh, we need to really to 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 hurry to make up for the time lost right during the, the pandemic i think one area specifically to your question one area uh, chinese intellectuals uh, scholars now engage uh, in a very intensive exciting discussion is the idea of chinese past to modernization mm -hmm. You know this, right? Yeah. In the report to the 20th Congress of the Chinese uh, uh, Communist Party of China, 
the Chinese pass to modernization is defined as modernization of a huge population, modernization of common prosperity, prosperity for all, modernization of material and, cult and cultural ethical advances, and modernization of harmony between humanity and nature, and modernization of peaceful development. Um, I think this policy, you know, narrative now, uh, it generates a huge amount of discussion uh, about Chinese passes to, uh, to modernization in the Chinese academic circles. I think this discussion also signifies that China has now come to a conscientious stage of theorizing its success story, mm -hmm. right? So is there only one pathway toward achieving modernization and modernity? Is, is the only Western path uh, for us? Or are there, I think at the heart of the discussion is the Chinese belief in diversity, in pathway toward modernity. I think this, uh, I think it will be very useful for Chinese uh, and our European uh, colleagues, scholars, really to come together to, to deliberate on those important issues. I think the discussion could be uh, carried out at all levels, philosophical, radical, policy level, you know, um, and, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that those kind of uh, discussion uh, and dialogue and even debate will be very productive. And even a conversation about what modernity actually means exactly. and what modernity actually is. Dong, I know we could continue this conversation Why? for hours, yes. um, but we have to come to an end and our listeners are probably also okay. at the end of their patience. I thank you very much for joining okay. us. We hope that you all have enjoyed listening to the Inside China podcast. If you haven't, we would encourage you to subscribe on whatever platform you have downloaded this episode on. And while you're there, feel free to give us a positive rating and a five-star review as that helps bring the other people on the podcast. But for now, from Wang Dong and Yanka Ato, it is goodbye. The researcher of the podcast was Alicia Baholska. The editor of this podcast is Richard Meyer. <laughs>